Game Changers, we've had a chance to spend some time uh, with people who are part of us, who are Game Changers in their own rights. And so this morning, I would like you to welcome Ken and Heather Bresser to the stage. Um, Heather, why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about who you guys are, maybe where you're from, and what God is calling you guys to where you're serving right now. All right. Um, I'm Heather. This is Ken, obviously. Ken grew up in this area, Gross Point area, and a lot of you know him a lot better than you know me. I grew up in the Cadillac area, which is north of Grand Rapids, a, a little higher. Oh. Yeah, okay, thanks. Um, <laughs> uh, almost 14 years ago, God brought the two of us together. After Ken had been in Russia and I had been in France, we met up at seminary just north of Chicago, um, Deerfield, uh, yeah, Trinity Education. Evangelical Divinity School. Thank you. I will get it out. Um, and in the past 14 years since he's brought us together, he's taken us to the mission field in Kursk, Russia, which somebody asked me, is that big? Is that little? Where is it anyway? Russia is big. Kursk is directly south of Moscow, about eight hours on the train. That puts us about two hours away from the Ukrainian border. And it is a city of almost half a million. So that's where we've been serving. For the past 10 years, we moved over there with a six-month-old who's now 10. And since then, God has given us also an eight-year-old girl and a four-year-old boy. So we enjoy our three little ones. That's awesome. So um, we had a chance to go to Russia a couple years ago. And, I, and people always ask me why this is, but I don't know that I have a good explanation. But of all of the places I've been, and God's blessed us with a lot of chances to go to a lot of places, Russia is one of the hardest places I've ever been, hardest spiritually uh, it just it was a tough tough place so it's a it's a pretty amazing thing that Ken and Heather have committed to do what they do but Ken why don't you tell us a little bit about what you guys do in Russia what is the ministry what is the partnership that we have uh, what has God called you guys to, to be a part of so we work primarily with leaders uh, trying to help Christian leaders in Russia do what they do better to grow in their relationship with Jesus uh, my goal is to is to lead people who are already in leadership and ministry to love Jesus more so that all they do, they do out of love for Jesus. Uh, some of the leaders that we work most closely with now are in a ministry called The Harbor, uh, which is a, a ministry to orphans. And we, uh, the ministry helps older orphans, 16, 17, 18, even up to their early mid-20s, to transition out of the orphanage and into independent adult, hopefully, and help people to understand kind of the, the landscape of the orphanage system and why it's necessary and why it's hard for the kids to transition out of it. I mean, it's, it's just they got to understand that a little bit. Right. So in Russia now, there are a lot of orphans um, for a variety of reasons. There are lots and lots of them. Most of them will grow up in orphanages, which is an institution of anywhere from 60 to 200 kids living in the same building. And I took Doug to one when he came out to visit a few years ago. And if you were to go to an orphanage now in Russia, you'd look at it and you'd say, you know, this isn't a bad place. It's well taken care of. You see the kids are fed and they're clothed. And uh, their needs seem to be largely met. What they lack are parents. What they lack is that one or two people who really love them and care for them. So they come out of the orphanage having had all their physical needs met, but not having any life skills. They don't know how to cook or clean or you know, 
do any of those things, they don't have an understanding of what work is and why one you know, should have a job because they've never had parents to give them a good example and show them love and, and nurture them in the process of, of becoming better. Yeah, I was thinking about it after the first service. In some ways, they've just never been enculturated. They've been in institutionalized. It's, it's not a prison system, but there's a similar uh, system here that just they, they don't have to learn how to, to do what, what somebody growing up in a traditional family setting, even relationally or skill set wise, have to learn to do. So, so what do you do to help them? Like, what, what is the ministry? So we uh, take kids into a residential program, a program for boys and for girls. They come in ideally immediately after the orphanage, sometimes a year or two later. They live in our facilities for uh, about two years. Typically, they'll be in secular studies, learning sewing or welding or some technical trade at the same time. And while they're living with us, we have Christian mentors who live with them on a day-to-day -day basis. They teach them all sorts of practical things, like I said, cooking and cleaning. Um, but also living in a relationship, they learn how to relate well to others. We teach them some job skills so that they have some experience firsthand in what it is to work and earn money and all of those things, and all the while um, exposing them to Jesus and his love and what he's done for them. That's great. So I want, them, I want you guys to hear a success story. So when we were there, we met Natasha, and Natasha had, had been in the program for, I think when we were there, a couple years. Um, help us just hear the rest of her story. We haven't been back there. What's happened with Natasha? Let everybody know kind of the, where that's gone. So Natasha <coughs> uh, is a girl who grew up in the orphanage from birth. Uh, she was there her whole life. And some of our volunteers went to visit her orphanage, and they you know, got into a relationship. And she heard about Jesus uh, in the orphanage. When she graduated, uh, we invited her to come and live in our facilities and have Christian mentors, which she did. She lived there for three years. And during that time, she learned all sorts of things. Most importantly, she made a commitment to Jesus. She got baptized. She got involved in the church. And, <clears throat> and she has stayed there. She's since been out of the, our program for two or three years. She's still in the church. She sings in the choir. She's expressing more interest in helping us um, reach out to you other can orphans. Clap if like you can clap you want. They seem to want to clap. Praise Jesus. Um, she has a job and a place to live. Her boss likes her a lot. Her boss actually gives her too much work because she knows that if she gives the work to Natasha, Natasha will get it done. If I could contrast sure. that success story with a girl named Vita who went to the same orphanage, had a lot of the same things, same difficulties, um, knew some of the same uh, Christians who went to visit her, was also invited to live at the harbor, and she came for a very short time and then left. And she left because she wanted to do her own thing. She left because she didn't want rules. She wanted what she calls freedom, which a lot of you probably know that what we think is freedom is bondage. Yeah. And that's what happened to her. She wound up living on the streets, going from church to church, asking for help when the churches would help her some, somewhat, but whenever it came to the real help of let me help you get a job. She wasn't interested. I saw her degrade over a period of years. She was living on the streets. At one point, I saw her. She looked like she was 10 or 15 years older than she actually was because she'd been on the streets. Right. She smelled. She didn't look clothed well. 
she had obviously been drinking a lot. And then I saw her again, and she was clothed well, she looked good, and I found out that she had a boyfriend, and her boyfriend was taking care of her. Unfortunately, in these kind of relationships, they don't know how to love. They haven't been loved, they haven't seen love, and so this boyfriend, I don't know the details, but they broke up shortly after that, and she was back on the street. And then we heard after some time that the statistics bear out of what happens to orphans without help, that she is now gone. So Heather, I'm curious, uh, having been where you are, having seen um, just how hard it is to, to, to do ministry where you are, why would you go? I said in the first service, why would you leave all this? But I'm saying that sarcastically. I, I, I get it. But why, why leave the comforts that you had here and go all the way to Russia to do what you do? I think going from here to wherever God calls us is a journey. And for each one of us, it was a journey. We each have our own story. But I will give you the bottom line of the story, and that is that in the Bible it says that it's God who works in us to will and to do for his good purpose. So we're in Kursk, Russia, because that's where God has called us. That's where he wants us right now. Because it's the obedient thing to do. That's awesome. So uh, help me to know how we can pray for you. How can we pray for you as a family? How can we pray for you as a ministry? Okay. Well, as a family, our next step in obedience is that we're, well, not exactly next. It's a year out still. We're looking at coming back to the States for a year. And that means that this is a transition year for us. It's going to be hard. There's going to be a lot of at least temporary goodbyes. And it also means... Our two children, well, one of them is already homeschooled, Kyle. The, our daughter, Vera, is in Russian schools. I need to homeschool her and get her ready for American schools as well. So that's our challenge for this year, um, getting through that transition. In ministry, um, I think the biggest prayer request right now in the short term is that September 1st is the start of a new school year. And we are hoping, praying to have five new girls in the harbor. Russians don't plan ahead, and there's not often a lot of foresight. We have lots of girls who've expressed interest. An orphanage director who said, yeah, I want some of our kids to be in your program. They're graduating out. But the kids have been gone most of the summer. Most of the kids still don't know where they're going to study in the fall. It's, it's, I realize it's August, September 1st. It's just around the corner. But there's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of interest, a lot of unknowns. My, the thing we could pray for is that in September, we would have five new girls in the program who would stay there for the two or three years that they need to, to really um, experience life change, the game changer yep. that, that Jesus brings about. That's great. Uh, we're going to pray for them. So maybe if you're comfortable, you want to reach out your hand towards them. Lord, thank you so much for Ken. Thank you for Heather. Thank you for uh, the partnership we've had uh, for over a decade of serving alongside them in, in Russia. Lord, I do pray for harbor and i pray that you would send five girls their stories would be uh, natasha's stories not vita's stories or that they would come that they would find a place where they are accepted and loved where they would learn their true identity as children of god as, as the little princesses who truly are loved and, and cherished by uh by god and just help them to discover that lord we pray for this family who uh really deals with so much and uh, help them to prepare the children for their year back here, prepare them for American schools. That won't be uh, all that easy, but we just pray for all of the logistics of that to uh, come together. Just bless them. Thank, thank you so much that we have a chance to uh, be in a partnership 
uh, with the Bressers. It's a great privilege. So we just pray uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's thank Ken and Heather for being up here today. <coughs> thank you, guys. Hey, grab your Bibles. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse 8, and we're going to read through verse 22. So grab your Bibles, your iPads, your phones, your tablets, whatever it is you use to follow along. If you're using the Bibles under your seat, we're on page 858. By now, I'm hoping you can find 1 Peter. Hopefully, you've been reading 1 Peter on your own. Uh, when we do these series, when we teach you a book of the Bible, it's our desire that you're spending time in them on your own, that you're immersing yourself in these letters. You're going to get as much sitting at home, uh, reading through it, and asking the Holy Spirit to uh, help you understand it, and then coming here. So hopefully, your Bible's falling open to 1 Peter as we're well on our way through this series. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22, Peter writes, finally. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because of this, you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if, if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sin once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God, he was put to death in the body and made alive in the spirit. Through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prisons who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes baptism and now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saved you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with the angels, authorities, and the powers in submission to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for... Uh, this letter, thank you for First Peter. I pray even now as we unpack um, what literally could be a series, uh, and we unpack it just in this, this next few minutes, Lord, help us to receive what you would have us receive. I pray that uh, seeds of truth would be planted, that they would bear great fruit. As always, Lord, we pray that we would leave here different than we came, that we would be unwilling to play church, and the church would actually be a place where we come to grow, to interact with the living God, to be uh, more and more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're teaching through First Peter, and in the process of teaching through First Peter, we are learning, we are, are learning how, with the help of God, with the work of the Holy Spirit in us, how to be game changers. As a matter of fact, what we've learned so far is that it's really our response, how we respond to circumstances, how we respond to other people, how we respond to the forces that come against us in our lives that really determine whether or not we are going to be game changers. 
Remember, the idea of being a game changer is having a lasting impact for the good of others. So even in tough times, even in difficult times, even in lean times, even in oppressive times, you and I are called to be game changers. This is what it means, actually, to be God's chosen people, to actually make a difference. See, God chooses us to make him known. God actually gives us this amazing opportunity through our lives, through our responses, through the way we behave to make God known. And if God is known, that changes everything. The way to leave a lasting impact on other people is to help them to know who God is. You heard Ken talking about it. The idea that if they can just help these, these girls and these boys to understand who God is and how much God loves them, it changes everything for them. It changes how they respond to life. You got to remember, 1 Peter is written to oppressed slaves, to people in exile, to people who were disenfranchised, people who were being mistreated. And Peter is writing to them and he's instructing them in the midst of all of this oppression, you are to respond in such a way to make God known. They were, and we are called to be game changers. So in the past few weeks, we've We've seen how to respond to, in our marriage, we've seen how to respond to our bosses, we've actually seen how to respond to, to government leaders, we, and we've been challenged in all of those instances to be a blessing, regardless of how they're responding to us. And now Peter shifts gears. And now he's going to instruct us how to live in community, how to live out our lives with one another, how to actually be a stronger church, but it's not just for the church. He's actually instructing us how to live in community in our neighborhoods. He's actually instructing us how to have better community or better connection, even within the context of our marriage. In some ways, this could be a continuation of last week. Last week, we really talked about marriage more than anything else, and this could very easily, easily be part two, but it's not just about marriage. This, what we talk about today, will affect how you do with your kids. It will affect how you do with your neighbors. It will affect how we do life together as a church. At Grace, we talk about six essentials. What we've said is if you really want to grow spiritually, you have to have six essential things in your life. you got to come to church. you got to gather. There's something that happens that's supernatural on Sunday morning, and when you gather as a church and you're together, it doesn't happen anywhere else, and this is important to you. Do you know that when it rains, Attendance is down by about 200 people, somewhere from 150 to 200 people. When it rains, it doesn't even have to rain hard. When it sprinkles, our attendance is down. So you know what that tells me? It tells me for a lot of us, church is just something we do if it's convenient. And what we'd like to do is challenge you to say, no, you need to make this a priority, that we gather together and we talk about connecting, actually being in small groups and being with other people. And we talk about serving because when you serve, you discover who God made you to be. You actually discover that you really are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do a good work, which he prepared in advance for you to do. So you discover who you, have, who you are. So we have these outer essentials, and then we have these inner essentials, that you have a heart of, of devotion, that you have a heart of generosity, that you're a person of influence, actually telling other people and sharing your faith with other people. So these are the, the six essentials. But one of those is connect. The second one is that, that, that you connect with one another, that we actually live out our lives in community, that we that we connect with God and we connect with others around the word of God. And there's something powerful that we know has happened when we actually get ourselves into a situation where we're living in a deeper connection. And today's passage informs us how to be game changers as we live out our faith in connection with one another. So last week, 
Last week was about improving your marriage, and this week can be about your marriage, but it goes so much further than that. So there's this thread or this theme that runs throughout all of 1 Peter, that, that if we were going to be game changers, it's more about how we live than what we say. The fascinating thing is, we're going to see in a few minutes, we do sometimes have to say something. But the truth of the matter is what we've talked about more than anything else is our responses, the way we respond to circumstances and other people. So how we live our lives is more about our testimony than what we say. Our lives and our words need to be congruent, if you will. You see, I can't stand over my kid in a fit of rage screaming at them to control themselves because I can't control myself. And they'll see right through me. So there's this need for us to be congruent. So most of you have probably heard the, this uh, uh, famous quote. It says, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. We are called at times to speak. And again, we're going to see that in a minute. But the truth of the matter is, First Peter is a picture of us living our lives in such a way that the outside world sees us and sees God and is moved towards an under desire and an understanding. I want to know what it is that you know about God, that they are attracted to what we're doing. So Peter is writing to us about how to do this in the context of community. And so in 1 Peter 3, he says, finally, all of you. Two simple things we can observe from finally all of you. First, he's wrapping something up, right? If somebody's talking to you and saying, finally, or, or let me make my last point, or, or one more thing, that's kind of what, what Peter's saying. He's saying, finally. So he's talking about all these different relational connections in our lives, and he says, finally, I want to talk to all of you. So if you gave yourself permission to check out last week because you're single and I was talking about marriage, you're out of luck this week because... Peter says right here, it's for all of you. It's for all of us. If you are here and you are a follower of Christ, what he's about to say is for all of you. So we, we know that. And so what Peter does in verse 8 is he gives us five commands or five keys, if you will, for unlocking community, for having a greater connection with one another. This one sentence gives us five things that we can hold on to. So look at verse 8. It says, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and be humble. Peter tells us that the first key to unlocking greater connection, the first key to greater community is to live in harmony. I love the word harmony. As a matter of fact, that's the word that I thought about the most this week as I was preparing this talk. I kept coming back to thinking about what a, what a rich word harmony is. Harmony really just means consistent, orderly, pleasing arrangement of parts. It means congruity. So in this case, he's not necessarily talking about music. As a matter of fact, he's not talking about music. But the truth of the matter is, if we use music as the object lesson, if we use it as the illustration, then we begin to understand what it really means to be in harmony. You see, to be in harmony, you're going to have to be on the same page. To be in harmony, you're going to have to be singing the same thing or playing the same thing. We, we all have to know what the song is that was going to be done if we were going to be in harmony. But the thing that I thought about the most is the only way to be in harmony, whether you're playing an instrument or singing, is to hear the other person. There is this amazing art of listening that becomes an integral part of being in harmony. So it used to be we had these big boxes on the stage. We called them a monitor, right? And the monitor was there for the simple fact so that the people who were behind the monitor could hear the other people. Now we have these things called in-ear monitors. We've gone out of our way to give them the technology that they need so that they can listen to one another because you can't be in harmony with one another if you can't 
hear one another. And if you can't hear one another, then you're going to be off key and you're going to be off tempo. And you're So when you're here early on Sunday and you're listening to a verse, a lot of times they'll stop or they'll say, I need more of the piano in my monitor. I need more of Oliver in my monitor. I need to be able to hear John in my monitor. And that's all so that they can listen. And here's the point I'm trying to make. We cannot be in harmony unless we learn to listen to one another. We cannot live in harmony unless we actually develop this skill of being able to listen, to truly listen to one another. Some of your translations might say that we are to be like-minded, or it might say that you are to be to live in one accord. But they're, they're all saying the same thing. And the truth of the matter is, harmony is probably the richest way to say that very thing. You cannot be in harmony and be in disagreement on tempo or style or key or, or which parts people are going to sing. You have to become like-minded. And I think about how many problems would be solved in the church. How many problems would be solved in our homes how many problems would be solved in communities if we learned to listen, if we learned to be in harmony with one another? So the first key to unlocking great communities, having a better connection in your relational lives is to be in harmony. And the second thing is to be sympathetic. This is actually a picture of putting yourself in the other person's shoes. The closest word to sympathetic would be empathy that I actually can feel what you feel. But imagine how many times we would make a different decision in our lives if all we did was stop and say, how is that going to make that person feel? How is that person going to feel if I say what I'm about to say? How would that person feel if they heard me say what I'm about to say to somebody else? If we had this constant understanding of empathy, it would change the way we respond to one another because we would know what it's like to be in their shoes. We would feel their pain. So to unlock community, we have to live in harmony. We have to be sympathetic. And then it says, love as brothers. And when I started preparing this, I kind of chuckled to myself because obviously Peter didn't grow up in my house. I had two brothers, and I don't think that we uh, lived up to whatever the biblical principle that is here wasn't displayed in my home as brothers. But the truth of the matter is, I love my brothers. I am deeply committed to my brothers. They will always be my brothers. There is a sense of being there for each other, even though we don't always relate as well as we should, they're my brothers. But I think the problem in Scripture sometimes, not the problem with Scripture, but the problem for us in understanding Scripture, is when a family type of, of reference is used. So even when we talk about God as our father, or here when we talk about having brotherly love, we struggle to understand what that's supposed to be because we didn't grow up in a high-functioning family. Some of us have a problem with God the Father because we just didn't have fathers that loved us well. Now, some of you did, but some of you didn't. So the thought of God as a father is a hard thing to wrap your mind around. The idea of, of brotherly love can sometimes be hard because maybe you were abused by a brother. Well, you don't want that kind of brotherly love. So we need to make sure we know what is brotherly love. Brotherly love is to be beloved, is to have a strong sense of belonging to one another, it's being closely united in affection to one another, it's being loyal to one another, and it's about showing up in times of need. And here's the deal. The fact is, lots of organizations know how to do brotherly love better than the church. Sad to say, but gangs know how to do brotherly love better than the church. Fraternities and sororities typically know how to do brotherly love better than the church. And so what they know is that young people grow up in dysfunction, they grow up in difficulty, and so they're longing for some type of stronger relational connection, and so they gravitate, gravitate towards gangs because the gangs convince them, hey, we're going to be brothers. 
We're going to have each other's back. We're going to be loyal to one another. Or they go to fraternities and sororities and, and they find a place. But imagine if the church could foster that same type of, of environment where people knew that they were accepted, where people actually felt brotherly love, how we would be scratching an itch that's a God-given thing that's inside of people that they turn to places that aren't necessarily good. Now, I don't need any emails. I'm not saying fraternities and sororities are bad. I'm just saying they may do this better than the church. One of our values here at Grace is that we, we value belonging. And we define belonging as a place where diverse people feel at home. We actually want to foster this idea of brotherly love. We want you to know that this is your family, that if you're in need, we want to come alongside you. We want you to feel like you belong here, that you have family here. It's important to us. So the keys to unlocking community, to having greater connection with people, you got to live in harmony. you got to be sympathetic. You have to have the ability to to put yourself in other people's shoes. You, you got to love as brothers, show brotherly love, acceptance of one another, and you got to be compassionate. The word here actually means tenderhearted. Sympathetic was placing yourself in the other person's shoes. Here is a picture of being gentle and tender in your responses. We saw this last week when we walked through this, and it said the men, you're supposed to be considerate. And we talked about how God has entrusted the women in our lives to us to care for them gently, to make sure that we are gentle in the way we respond to them and that we don't harm them physically or emotionally, that that's something that's entrusted to us, this, this being able to move towards them tender. And it says of the women that you are to be quiet and gentle with your husbands. There's a picture of tenderness that is a part of being in connection with one another. Last week, I think I was pretty hard on the, the men of the church. I, I felt like I kind of got in your face. I have my notes that I got in your grill, but I didn't know if you guys know what I meant by that. But anyway, the truth of the matter is, if we could learn this, I think women get this better than we do, but if we as men could learn this, it would radically transform our relationships. If we understood what it really meant to be tender, but not to be wimps, because you know, the scriptures actually tell us that we're supposed to be tender warriors that our wives need to see strength, that, that people need to look at us and be able to see strength in us. They need to be able to see that we are going to stand between danger, that we are going to stand up for our families, that we're going to stand up for our community, that we're going to stand up and we're going to lead in the way that God has called us to lead, that we're going to be warriors where we're called to be warriors. And sometimes we get the warrior thing all figured out, and it's easier for us to be all macho and be warriors, but we forget about the tender thing. And so in our warriorness, we run over people, and we run over our friends, and we run over our kids, and we run over our wives, and we forget that we're supposed to be tender warriors. So if you want to unlock community, if you want to have a greater connection in your lives, greater connection with your kids, greater connection with your, with your friends, you've got to live in harmony, you've got to be sympathetic, you've got to love as brothers, you've got to be compassionate, and the last thing he says is be humble. Now to be humble really is just to know who you are before God. To be humble is to actually know that if God doesn't show up, you're toast. To be humble is to know where you came from. To be humble is to say, without Christ, I'm nothing. Without Christ, I can't teach the word of God. Without Christ, I can't lead in the context of my family. Without Christ, I can do nothing. To be humble is to, to give everything back to God and to have this utter dependence that, God, if you don't show up, nothing's going to work out. And so it changes the way we pray. It changes the way we go. And when we truly know how dependent we are on God, and we truly know where we've been and how far and how much God has given us, it changes the way we respond to other people. You cannot be a judgmental person 
and at the same time know who you are and all that you have received by the grace, the unmerited favor of God. It grounds us. It keeps us from overpowering people. It keeps us from being judgmental in the way we go after it. So just in verse 8, we have these, these five keys to unlocking community. We have this picture of, of, of what we ought to be about, how we ought to respond to other people to have a greater connection. And then really verse 9 through 22 serve to inform us as to, to how to live in there. So we know what, and now we're going to look at the how. So look at verse 9. He says in verse 9, this is really just putting action to what he's saying. He says, don't repay evil with evil. Don't repay insult with insult, but with a blessing. How counterculture is that? Don't repay evil. That means when somebody is evil to you, you repay the evil with a blessing because to this you were called. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is your calling. To this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Back to the major theme of 1 Peter. Our response. We are called to respond in a God-honoring way regardless of of how people respond to us. There is this picture that we see in verse 9 of, of what I call reciprocation and escalation. You see, I see it all the time. I see it in marriages when people come and sit in my office. She did something to him, and so he responded by doing something to her, which made her respond to do something to him. And, and it's gotten worse, and it's worse. And the problem keeps escalating and nobody really even knows what the first thing that was done but it just keeps getting worse and worse so there's this picture of of reciprocation but each time you reciprocate you got to make it a little bit worse because hey you did this to me so i'm going to even do more to you and so it gets worse and worse this is the very picture of what's happening in israel and palestine it's reciprocation and escalation and it's reciprocation and escalation and it keeps getting worse and worse and it's so hard to untangle but the scripture says no that's not what you're about See, if you're a follower of Jesus, when somebody does evil to you, you don't get to reciprocate. You have to ask yourself, what it would look like for me to bless them? What does it look like for me to be gracious to them? What does it look like for me not to respond in a way that will escalate the situation? And then in verse 10, Peter starts a, a, a list where he starts to quote Psalm 34. And all he's doing by using Psalm 34 is he's adding more color, he's putting more feet, if you will, to verse 8. So in verse 10 he says, For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. That's what we just talked about. They must seek the peace and pursue it, something we've been talking about a lot. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and their ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you love life, if you want to see good days, if you want to have greater relationships with one another, then you better be careful what comes out of your mouth. You better watch your words carefully. Don't let anything deceitful come out of your mouth. Don't let hurtful things come out of your mouth. Deceitful. Don't, don't speak of yourself in a way to make you more than you are. Don't tell people stories about yourself in order to put yourself in a better light. Be careful to be honest in the way you communicate with one another. Be careful how you use your words. I love verse 12. It says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Last week, we saw that if we actually love our husbands, we husbands love our wives well that God hears our prayers that our prayers are more effective and here we see the same principle again if you live into the very things we're teaching it says that then the Lord is attentive to your prayers how many of us want to have a more dynamic prayer life 
How many of us would like to see God show up in more extraordinary ways in our lives? How many of us would like to know that when we kneel before the Father and ask him to bless our family or to to bless our community, how many of us want to know that those prayers would be more effective and saying, look, if you live your life in such a way, your prayers are unencumbered, that God is attentive to your prayers. How amazing is that? Verse 13, verse 14, Peter says, the reality is if you live this way, most people are going to treat you well. The reality is if you live into this principle, it's going to go better for you. But even if it doesn't, don't be afraid. Don't be be frightened. Even if it doesn't, then just know that you are suffering because you're being obedient to what God has called you to. And then look at verse 15 and 16. He says, but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. The truth is, when we begin to live out and model this type of community, when we begin to respond to people in a way that that follows 1 Peter, people will notice and they will ask, what's the deal? How in the world can you respond that way? Why don't you go treat them the way they deserve to be treated? Why would you be so kind to somebody that's been so unkind to you? It will cause people to ask the question, why? Why are you this way? Always be prepared to tell them, live your lives in sharing the gospel. And when they ask, and I love the fact that it says, but when somebody asks, when somebody asks, be prepared to answer them. So when do we speak? We speak when somebody steps into it. We speak when somebody opens the door. We speak when somebody says, why are you the way we are? And then here's something I find fascinating. I have heard this verse quoted, I don't know how many times, since I've been a Christian since I was five, and I've heard the always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. I have never heard somebody quote it with the last part of this, but do it with gentleness and respect. We seem to have forgotten that in the evangelical church. I mean, here's the deal. Ask the gay and lesbian community if they see the evangelical church as a place of gentleness and respect. Now, we don't have to compromise on what's right. We don't have to compromise on what's truth. We don't have to say that that what's sin isn't sin, and, and that's none of what this is talking about. What it's saying is when you respond to people, do it with gentleness and respect. Don't judge people. It's not your job judge it's the holy spirit's job to bring judgment and we are known for anything but gentleness and respect always be prepared but be prepared to do it in such a way that it doesn't put people off don't hit people over the head don't judge other people peter's told us what we need to do in verse eight He's told us how we need to do it in in the preceding verses. Now by the time we get to verse 18, so we have have the what, we have the how. Verse 18, he shifts gears now, and he he tells us why. Why we should live our lives in such a counterculture way. Why would you offer grace and forgiveness to somebody who hasn't even asked for it, nor do they seem to deserve it by their behavior? Why would you respond to people in such a way? And Peter says we respond that way because that's the way Jesus responded to us. We respond that way because Jesus modeled it. So if you look at verse 18, it says, For Christ died for sin once and for all. The righteous, that's Jesus. For the unrighteous, that's you and me, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. You know Christ died to give you life. You know, while you were still far from God, while you were still sinning, before you ever had any any idea to say, God, I'm sorry for who I am, before any of that came out of your lips, 
Christ died for you. He moved towards you when it didn't seem that you were asking for it or when you, you even had any kind of repentance in your spirit. Yet while you were sinners, Christ died for you. Christ died for me. And now we're being told to do the same things towards other people, to be compassionate, to be sympathetic, to be gentle, to, to show people brotherly love. Verse 19 through 22 really uh, are complicated. And uh, we could preach on it through a whole series probably. Uh, and the truth of the matter is there are a lot of different schools of thought of what Peter is trying to say here when he talks about the fact that Jesus went back and preached to the prisoners. And here's what I want you to know. I don't think it's core to our belief system to really to know exactly what Peter was trying to say because the one part we can all agree on if you look at this is what he's saying is the, the cross is a powerful moment in time. So powerful, in fact, the death and resurrection of Christ is so powerful that it reaches back in time and saves all of those who came before and it reaches forward in time and it's our salvation and the salvation of those who come after us. So Peter is painting a picture of this moment in time where Jesus went to the cross and because he went to the cross, he has this amazing ability to reach back and to reach forward. And he says that, that all of the angels and the authorities are in submission to him. And so Peter is saying, look, you have the power that you need to be successful in what I'm asking you to do. You have what it takes to live this out. I've given you the Holy Spirit. You have the power through Jesus Christ to be the very person that I've called you to be. Peter is painting a picture of how amazing the crucifixion, all that was accomplished through the crucifixion, all that happened through the resurrection of Jesus. He's making sure that we understand the gospel. The fact is, we are a mosaic. We say it all the time. We are a mosaic striving together to live like Jesus. What does it mean to be a mosaic? We are racially diverse. We are uh, educationally diverse. We are age-wise diverse. We are economically diverse. We are diverse in our past religious experiences. We are a mosaic striving together to live like Jesus. And the question I would ask you is, how are you doing? How are you doing in that arena? How are you doing in your desire to live like Jesus? Are you living more and more like Jesus? Do you find yourself extending grace to people when they're ungracious to you? Do you find yourself being forgiving of people even when they haven't asked for it? Do people look at you? Do they look at me? Do they look at us as a church and see our good deeds and because of that know who the Father is? Do they ask us, why are you guys the way that you are? Why are you so different? Why are you responding the way you're responding? Today is communion. And uh, I don't know if you've picked up on this yet, but I love communion. I love this moment in time that Jesus established for us. I love the fact that he said, look, every time you do this, every time you do this, stop and reflect. Every time you come to the table, ask yourself, how am I doing? Am I living more like Jesus? Am I becoming more and more like him? How am I doing with the stuff that we talked about last week or the week before or this week? Am I actually living out my faith? Is this real to me? Am I actually becoming more and more like Jesus? Communion is a time for us to stop and do some self-examination. Communion is a great time for you to just repent. Say, look, I know I missed it this week, and all of us have something to repent for. All of us. I 
know I missed it here. I know I missed it there. I know I missed it when I was driving to work and I lost my temper. I know, God, and you just say, God, forgive me for that. And you know that God's grace is new every morning, that God extends grace and mercy to you to forgive you. And then recommit. Uses the time to say, look, I want all that God has for me. I want to live into my faith in such a way that I can be a game changer. So use these next few moments as we take communion as a time to just do some self-examination. Time for repentance and a time to just say, I want all that God has for me. So the band's going to come up and the servers are going to come down and we're going to hand out the, the communion elements. And my encouragement for you is hold on to them. We'll take them together. Uh, in our church, uh, this is for anyone who's made a commitment to follow Jesus. So you may be a visitor here, uh, but if you know Jesus, then we encourage you to take. If uh, you haven't figured that out yet, we would love to talk to you about that more after the service. Come down and, and we'll share that. But, but if you haven't decided to follow Jesus, let's let this betray pass. This is for those who have decided that, that I'm going to commit my life to Christ. Lord, I just pray right now as we partake of this amazing opportunity that you've put in front of us to to share in your blood and, and your body, to, to really understand all that you accomplished on the cross for us. Lord, I pray that this would be a holy moment. I pray that this wouldn't be a ceremony. It wouldn't be a ritual. It wouldn't be something we just do, but it would be a divine, holy moment for us. Help us to receive what you would have us receive. Help us to hear what you would have us hear. Help us to be who you would have us be.